Welcome to episode number nine in our series of short explainers for the Hunger Vital Sign tool. I'm your host, Helen Laban. In this episode, we're concluding our conversation with Katie Davis of Hunger Free Vermont. My name is Katie Davis, and I am the Community Health Initiatives Director at Hunger Free Vermont. Hunger Free Vermont is a mission-driven organization with the goal of ending the injustice of hunger and malnutrition for all Vermonters. One of the things that Katie looks for is ways to make changes at scale, building from federal programs and bringing in tools like Hunger Vital Sign that are designed to become standard systems used in a universal way throughout the state or country. Hunger Free Vermont's work is really at the systems level, trying to expand and increase access to, to food. And our main vehicle for that is really trying to encourage use of the federal nutrition program. So things like Three Squares Vermont or what we call nationally SNAP, meals in school, meals in childcare. Um, so really trying to provide technical assistance on how to best run those programs um, and how to increase participation. So I'm really trying to focus on universality of things in school, really trying to focus on, you know, dignity and reducing stigma in Three Squares Vermont. Note how, in this sense, standardization and accessing federal programs isn't about rules and bureaucracy. It's about making cultural shifts to signal that we're all working on the big issue of hunger together, that it's a universal concern and many of us may need assistance at some point in our lives. That last point is especially true in healthcare, where new diagnoses or medical events may change not only someone's financial circumstances, but also things like mobility, ability to cook, and dietary requirements, including possibly requiring complicated, specialized diets. Hunger Vital Signs Screening holds a place for all of these conversations. If everybody in the state is going into the doctor for either annual visits or, you know, if they need additional care and they're being asked these questions, these are conversations that are happening more and more. They're really personal um, and it can be really difficult to have them. And so, you know, as you're building that relationship, we're in many ways, you know, changing the culture and the way that we think about ourselves when we need assistance, the way that we think about others. And I think there's a lot of kind of far-reaching implications outside of healthcare, um, that having this habitual conversation can really start to change the way that we think about food access um, and the way that we think about asking for help when you're struggling and the way that we think about designing and devising programs to meet these needs. We've also discussed practical ways that work on food insecurity screening in healthcare makes sense to an organization dedicated to ending hunger. Healthcare providers consider a broad range of preventive factors that support good health, including the quality of our diet. There's also clear clinical evidence around how diet affects treatment for many health conditions. It makes sense then for healthcare providers to talk about food with their patients. Also, collecting food insecurity information in healthcare settings, especially primary care, can capture information from a wide cross-section of a community. This community-level data is especially useful because it's iterative. In other words, patients return regularly so you can begin to evolve and improve programs and get rapid feedback on whether you're on the right track. Of course, this advantage of healthcare partnerships extends only as far as a region has invested in healthcare access for everyone. The state of Vermont has really long done a good job of making sure that folks with, you know, the lowest socioeconomic status have really had access to healthcare. To recap this recap, opportunity abounds. But there are limits, too. I remember talking to one of my college friends who went on to become a doctor treating hospital patients with advanced kidney disease. Somewhere around the summer of 2020, he said to me, I spend all day working as hard as I can to keep patients alive to see their family one more time. 
And now you expect me to also go to their corner convenience store and convince the owner to carry kale and apples instead of chips and soda, and then make sure people have the money to buy the kale, and that they want to cook and eat the kale, so that 20 years from now, someone else might not be in the same situation as the patient I'm trying to save today? Even if I had the time, where would I find the emotional capacity? The original quote used more colorful language, but point well taken. It's not just about time, and it's not just about caring what happens. Making necessary changes in the food system requires expertise. It requires all types of expertise. How well someone performed in medical school doesn't have anything to do with how much we trust them with kale recipes. It requires community knowledge. It requires policy change. And sometimes it straight up requires regulatory authority over the food system. I think, you know, medical providers are, are used to having to do it all. Solving hunger. It's not a place where medical providers are going to do it all. I think there's definitely apprehension, assuming that, you know, when you start screening that you need to be able to jump into the deep end of the pool right away. And I think that's just an unrealistic and an unfair expectation to put on anyone as a medical provider. And that one of the opportunities that the Hunger Vital Sign really does afford is to really develop deeper connections with community organizations and understand what types of services are being provided out in, out in the community and who can help support folks finding what they need. And there's certainly a lift in terms of all the data pieces and implementing the screen, but I think in terms of the referral and response, um, there's a lot of people in communities across the state and across the country who have been dedicated to making sure folks can get connected to social services of all kinds, um, and that includes food access too. And so this is an opportunity to elevate their skills and to, you know, really open the doors a little bit wider and have it be more of a community medical response as well. In Episode 7, Katie talked about one of these collaborations with the University of Vermont Children's Hospital, implementing hunger vital sign screening as part of a larger project to address food security for patients and their families. This project connected to several systems in healthcare that can help replicate successful models and provide a structure for connecting with diverse partners. Many of these systems fall under the category of quality improvement projects. And consistent data, the kind of information that's collected with a standard tool like Hunger Vital Sign, helps practices in different places learn from each other. We were part of a national group um, that was trying to implement similar quality health improvement projects at their hospital. So we had opportunities to kind of learn from them and, and figure out what data we should be trying to look at and figure out, you know, how do we actually get patient voice involved? How do we actually understand what delivery of the hunger vital sign feels like? Um, and really try to, you know, set some benchmarks and, and understand what's happening and what direction that we need to be moving in. Another structure for the Children's Hospital was their Community Health Needs Assessment, which is a process taking place every three years to build strategies for addressing critical community health needs. It was really the community health needs assessment that pushed and was the impetus for, for really digging into to the work around implementing the hunger vital sign at the Children's Hospital. And it's been a wonderful experience as a community partner to be, you know, a full member at the table. Community partners have their own systems for collecting input, and this engagement is a lot of work. Bringing everyone to the table when input is needed, in a way where participants feel their perspective is valued, with a conversation structured so that the information gathered can be put into practical use, is not only a true skill set, but also something that relies on trust built over time. 
Similarly, community groups may have the experience in engaging their constituencies, but lack experience on the medical side to build a conversation that effectively engages healthcare systems. It's an opportunity for mutual benefit. Being able to get the right people at the table, I think has been one of the biggest challenges and making sure that it's not just like top-down decision-making, but the folks who are actually going to be part of the process have a voice. If you don't do that, then it plays into the way that you approach asking the questions and delivering the screen because you're already frustrated by the myriad of things that's associated with it. So that can be a real struggle. I often... When I run up against things, if it's a if it's a data question or a, health, a medical record question, um, I'll often try to point them to other people that I've worked with who have actual medical experience and understand the data systems better than I do. And I think that does a nice job of you know building new connections for medical providers and shows that I don't do things that I'm not actually qualified to do. One thing we've emphasized in this Hunger Vital Signs series is that the risk screen is only a first step, but a powerful first step. And community partners can help take these steps in many ways. We've discussed their potential role in creating an effective screening process, providing connections to non-medical services for referral, and of course, providing the services themselves, making the screening system more effective by helping it become more universally used, and building community data into advocacy for policies that bring us closer to the goal of eliminating food insecurity. A last point on the policy piece. In episode seven, Katie talked about using local data to create a path forward for universal school meals. Another advantage of partnering with groups like Hunger Free Vermont, which apply a broader anti-hunger lens to initiatives like hunger vital sign screening, is that they can see ways to leverage funds, data, and programs across sectors. So for example, if screening patients for food insecurity leads to more referrals for SNAP enrollment, then that affects federal calculations of funds for school meal programs, and that in turn makes universal school meals more possible for Vermont. She knows those kinds of connections. I think from a, a data perspective, actually having having a sense of what the picture looks like for Vermont would be really amazing. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity there to you know, advocate for different waivers that could expand the federal programs in different ways. If only we knew that um, this population of folks who falls into this category in this geographic area had needs that were going unmet. What are those needs? We can then dig, you know, dig more into some of the why if we know a bit more about the who. And then, you know, either expand things for the federal programs or really hone and focus in with local or state money to be able to fill some of those gaps. Because I think that's part of the how can we more fully leverage the funds that are coming into the state. Another point that we explored in the earlier episodes is how use of hunger vital sign has evolved over the years as both research and implementation have added to its utility. A key change took place several years ago when Epic made food insecurity screening a standard part of its electronic health record, or EHR, platform. You may not have noticed the national celebrations to commemorate this occasion, but trust me when I say that a small yet dedicated portion of the population felt very celebratory. What this meant was that healthcare practices had an easy, structured way to record patients' food insecurity risk, allowing them to track how this risk interacted with healthcare services and health outcomes at the individual patient level, and to combine this data to see how food insecurity played out in patient groups across their practice including learning whether programs designed to reduce food insecurity had a significant impact. 
There are opportunities to make more structural changes like this one to improve healthcare practices' ability to collaborate with community organizations. One of the pieces that there's a lot of momentum for are kind of wraparound referrals. So really having, you know, automated systems where at your physician's office or at the hospital, a referral can be put in that is automatically goes to a community partner, automatically goes to 211, or automatically goes to some institute where services can be provided. So really automating that piece of it, I think, is something that we're going to see a lot more, especially, you know, as access to technology continues to, to increase. Connecting record systems reflects how complicated the process can be to address the healthcare needs of patients with food access barriers. There might be a primary care provider, one community service organization connecting a patient with resources for food, another organization providing transportation to food programs, another healthcare practice with a registered dietitian providing medical nutrition services, and perhaps a fourth organization providing skills training and coaching to help patients learn to prepare a specialized medical diet. Another area of work is in the services themselves following a risk screen, including what services are covered by healthcare payers. We've talked about how federal nutrition safety nets offer a first step, but those don't cover everyone, and they aren't designed to provide food that matches particular medical needs or to integrate with medical services like nutrition therapy. Should there be more standard options for next steps? And what kind of data would we need to collect to map out that strategy? One of the things that I've noticed in the difference between Vermont and other states is, you know, there's many attributes to being a small state. However, not having economies of scale really hobbles us in some ways. Because, you know, when I talk to folks in other states who are who are working on other initiatives, the sheer number of people, you know, makes the idea of insurance claims and different kind of billing codes make a lot more sense than it does here in the state of Vermont. So I think there's there's benefits to being a small state and, you know, and the fact that we have a, a really low uninsured rate, folks have relationships with their primary care providers. That really is a, a beautiful story in many ways. And then there's other ways where some supports that are available in places where they just have more people um, and that makes more sense. Um, the, the services are different. And so I think there's, you know, there's pros and cons on both sides. Have we said enough times that hunger vital sign screening is the first step down a very long path and the opening to a very long conversation? Well, it's true. And we'll surely explore that conversation more in future episodes of Policy in Plainer English. Before the next installment, be sure to check the resources and links in the show notes and at plainerenglish.org.